Um, we're in Second Thessalonians chapter something tonight. Is it chapter 2? Yeah, we're still in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. If you want to open your Bibles there and navigate on your devices. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, as we continue verse by verse through this wonderful epistle. If I were at all poetic, I'd say that love is like a subtle perfume lingering over these verses. In verse 13, uh, Paul calls them the brethren beloved by the Lord. And then in verse 16, Jesus Christ and God the Father have loved them. Love can be difficult to discuss, maybe not for you, but for me. As soon as you start analyzing it, taking it apart, defining it, it actually starts to lose its essence. Instead of being warm and powerful, it can seem cold and weak under a microscope. And so I want to be careful to not diffuse or in any way diminish the love of God in these verses. We want to keep that first and foremost. Take just a moment and read to yourself verses 13 and 14. A system of theology in miniature, that's what theologians call those verses, and they're certainly packed with theology. I don't want to take anything away from their intellectual importance, but they're also full of love. They're set in a context of God's love for you, and we don't want to overlook God's love as the foundation of what is said in these words. Here's what I mean. You read, from the beginning, God chose you for salvation. It's the doctrine of election. And immediately, intellectual battle lines are drawn as scholars and students of the Bible debate their version of God's sovereignty in choosing you versus man's free will in responding to him. It's really a debate about your understanding of the grace of God. You could ask, is grace irresistible or is grace resistible? If you come to think that God's grace toward mankind is irresistible... You arrive at the conclusion that those who remain lost in their sins, who perish for eternity, were not chosen by God to be recipients of His irresistible grace. They, in fact, are predestined for hell, and they say that this is all to the glory of God. If you come to think that God's grace towards mankind is resistible, then you arrive at the conclusion that by His death on the cross, Jesus frees the will of every human being to receive or resist the grace of God. God is no less sovereign to have freed your will to choose. Sometimes lost in this doctrinal debate is the more foundational truth behind all this. God is love and he loves you. Dave Hunt wrote a book whose title is, I think, a good field test of theology. Since we know God is love and he loves us, when you hear a position in theology expounded, you might want to ask yourself, what love is this? In other words, is it consistent with the love of God as it is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ? And so let's get into it. Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul was bound to give thanks for the believers at Thessalonica because of what we learned in the previous verses of chapter 2. Remember, we're in the middle of a chapter. And in those verses, we learned that they would not be on the earth during the great tribulation, and neither will we. And that's something to be thankful for. And since they had believed the gospel and received Jesus Christ as their Savior, they would be raptured prior to that awful day of God's wrath, which is coming upon the whole earth and those that dwell upon it. 
Now, to further encourage them about their future because they were presently suffering, Paul took them back to their past. He took them really far back in their past. He says, from the beginning. This is before they were saved, before they were born, before even the universe was created as we know it. For lack of a better term, I sometimes call it eternity past. The Bible elsewhere calls it before the foundations of the earth. All the way back there, you were beloved by the Lord. And the Lord here is specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's frame the words of Paul within the perspective of John 3.16. In eternity past, before the foundations of the earth, God so loved the world that he determined to send his only begotten son into the world that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The whole human race was and is loved by God, and Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to save whosoever will believe in him without limit. God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The word for chose is definitely describing God choosing to save you before you were born. In other portions of Scripture, the word elect or election is used to describe the same thing. Now, all Christians believe in election. It's not a matter of, well, I don't believe in election. Yes, you do. All Christians believe in election because it is what the Bible teaches. But there are at least three biblical ways to understand election. I'm not going to go into them here. We've done it before. Uh, But they are called unconditional election conditional election, and corporate election, and all three uh, can be defended biblically. For myself, I reject any theory of election that maintains God purposefully determined before the foundation of the world to damn the majority of the human race to hell. I would reject as unbiblical and not worthy of God any theory that he chose some but did not choose others when he could have done otherwise. Love requires there be a freedom, or we might say a freeing, to choose. You cannot force or coerce love or it ceases to be love. God's choosing you in eternity past does not overrule your choosing him in time, and your choosing him in time does not violate his sovereignty. These are not two exclusive truths, but one inclusive truth. Then he talks about the sanctification of the Spirit. That's the work of God, the Holy Spirit who sets you apart from sin to salvation. It starts when you are born again. It is a process of becoming more like Jesus that continues throughout your lifetime. And he says here that all of this occurs when you believe in the truth. The divine choice to salvation in eternity past becomes operative through your faith. In plain language, you hear the gospel and you believe it, you receive it. You do not resist the grace of God. And so verse 14 says, To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace calls to every heart. Uh, I love that scripture in Ecclesiastes that says that he has placed eternity in their hearts. I don't know why. That's always been a very meaningful scripture to me. It solves so many Uh, It doesn't solve anything, but it it really ministers to me as I look out at the human race, as I remember my own conversion, as I see people around me, and I think there is something about the heart that yearns for something more, something greater, that understands there's something beyond this life. 
Uh, people can talk about evolution or all these other, you know, non-spiritual uh, 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 kinds of points of view, uh, but they're all searching for something, and that something is uh, eternity in their hearts, the sense that we are eternal beings, that we're going to live forever. But people have a sneaking suspicion that death doesn't end their existence. There's not annihilation that they go on. They don't want to believe the gospel because it requires change, because uh, there are demands, there's accounting of the cost, and so they'd rather believe almost anything uh, else, uh, but God continues to call out to them. And so he calls us by the gospel, God's grace calling to every heart, and by his sufficient universal work on the cross, Jesus can free the will to respond to the grace of God. Grace, however, is resistible, and tragically, there are multitudes who resist the grace of God and perish. Jesus thought God's grace could be resisted when he prayed for Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You were not willing. And so Jesus portrays an unwillingness to uh, accept the offer of the kingdom, a resistance to the grace of God. The martyr Stephen certainly thought God's grace could be resisted when he told the Jews who were trying him and about to stone him, you stiff-necked people, he said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and so uh, there is a possibility that this wonderful grace that is extended to the human race, this grace of salvation, can be resisted. And many of you can remember when you were resisting the grace of God, when you didn't want to hear the gospel, when you ran from the gospel. After I got saved, I thought, I remembered other times that the gospel had been presented to me and how the word had been stolen from my heart by the devil. Uh, I remember one time in particular on campus at UC Riverside, uh, a bunch of guys from Campus Crusade were handing out tracts and stuff, and, and I just immediately you know, threw it in the trash and ran practically, you know, resisting the work that God wanted to do in my life. And uh, uh, thankfully, there came a time when his uh, efforts became, I guess, more aggressive. And I began to see <clears throat> that there was more going on in the world than I had thought. Uh, those who yield to the grace of God are on a path, it, say, it says, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we would say that you're on your way to glory. Uh, you're journeying homeward. You're looking for that city whose builder and maker is God, the celestial city where our mansions will be, the new Jerusalem. Paul was not trying to confuse these believers. He was trying to comfort them. He was directing their hearts back to God's love for them. And so bear that in mind as you study this on your own and uh, you know, later on as you get into thoughts about election and God's love and all that. Paul is writing to a relatively young group of Christians, not to confuse them, but to say, look, um, you're, you're suffering greatly right now. And here's one of the things you need to know is that God loved you before the foundation of the world and you responded to that love and God is able to keep you in that love. He was directing their hearts back to God's love for them. And, and sometimes, you know, there are people, uh, maybe some of you have been in situations like this where you, all you're going to have really in life is the love of God. 
Uh, you may lose everything else and everyone else. I, I mean, I, I hope that doesn't happen to you, but uh, there, are, there are people who are more like Job than, than they are like, uh, you know, uh, Solomon, I guess, who have everything and then backslide. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a, a Jobian aspect to all of our lives at some point, is there not? Where you, you look at your life and you think, you know, what else is there but, but the Lord? And that has to be enough for you. Now, the believers at Thessalonica were suffering intense persecution, maybe even to the point of martyrdom. It was so bad that when false teachers tried to deceive them by telling them they were already in the tribulation, they believed it. I mean, today, if somebody came here on campus and, or maybe wherever you're out in the world and said, hey, we are in the tribulation right now, I doubt that you would bite on that at all. I, I mean, you'd admit that the world is in terrible shape, but I doubt that you would really bite on that. Uh, now, you might think we're going to go through the tribulation. There are lots of Christians who believe that, lots of people, and they're preparing for it. But nobody believes that we're in it. But when this, this deception came to Thessalonica that, hey, we're in the tribulation now, they said, okay, well, we can accept that. And that means things must have been pretty bad for them in order for them to, to swallow that. Uh, and so one of Paul's spiritual strategy, strategies, rather, to overcome their fears and doubts was to direct their hearts back to God's love for them in saving them. He had determined to save them from eternity past. They believed God. They responded to the gospel. They were born again, and now they were headed for glory. And so it's, it's basic stuff. It's just a, a, a going back to your salvation and the joy of God's salvation and holding on to that. He that had begun this great work in them from before the foundations of the earth would be faithful to complete it. No amount of tribulation could separate them from the love of God that was in Christ Jesus. If or when you find yourself suffering or struggling, ask God to direct your heart back to his eternal love for you. That's a great prayer. That's, we'll, we'll get into it more when Paul gets to that section and he actually prays that. But, you know, there's a lot that we pray for when we're going through a struggle, when a trial comes. First, God, get me out of this trial. I mean, that's a standard, right? Uh, uh, you know, unless you're feeling especially spiritual, which in my mind means I'm trying to fool God by saying, thank you for this trial, Lord. Wink, wink. You know, now that I've thanked you, you can let it go. You know, see, I've, I got the lesson already. There's a, there's a feeling among Christians because it's taught this way sometimes that God just wants to teach you a lesson. And so he allows something to happen in your life. And as soon as you get the lesson, you graduate. Uh, but over the years, I've seen too many people with too much lifelong suffering who get the lesson and continue to suffer. I think Paul the Apostle got the lesson when he had the thorn in his flesh, did he not? God said, yeah, you're going to have to suffer for me because of the great and wonderful privileges that I've given you. And so I don't even want you to pray about this anymore. Just accept this thorn in the flesh. And so, you know, suffering, you know, a lot of people don't like to talk about suffering. I maybe like to talk about it too much. I'm a little bit morbid, uh, but I've just seen too much suffering. And as I get older, uh, there's just a lot more of it going around. You know, do you ever, it, when you get to the point when you think, gee, you know, did we, uh, were all of our friends sick like this before? Then you, you're old. That's, that's what it is. We, I got into a little discussion down in Southern California with a lady. Uh, somebody said something about 
being old, and she said, oh, you're only as old as you think, and I go, yeah, no, you're not. You're as old as you are, you know. I mean, just, I might, I still think I'm 21, but I'm old, and my body, it, you know, if I do things that I did when I was 21, I'll feel like I'm 121 the next day, so that's age. Uh, so anyway, God was doing this great work in them, and one of the f- strategies was to remember the joy of their salvation. And so add that to your prayer. And maybe your first prayer when you're in a trial is, Lord, remind me how much you love me. And, and let me be certain of your love. Because quite, Paul doesn't get into it here, but quite honestly, if we're honest, we doubt God's love when we're in a trial. That's the, that's the first thing that gets cast in front of us by the devil. It's like, if God really loved you, would... <laughs> You know, what, what kind of a God would do this to you? Uh, I mean, it, you know, what, what's going on here? How, what, what love is this? It, it's the love that put Jesus on the cross. That's what love is. It's, it's a love that understands suffering and, and the, the depth of sin that is in our world and has done something about it. Uh, let me give you a word of advice, too. Don't stumble over election as a debate. It's a delight to comfort and encourage you on earth as you await the return of Jesus Christ. If and when you do find yourself in a debate with someone over the doctrine of election, make sure you continue to emphasize the love of God because that's the thing that's first lost in that debate is that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And, and it's amazing how quickly we can get off uh, the majors and into the minors and have entire discussions about God and never mention his love and his sacrifice on our behalf uh, on the cross. And so uh, make sure you emphasize God's love. The more you contemplate God's love for you, the more you will be in love with him. It's, it's impossible to be otherwise. His love compels you onward in your walk with him. Verse 15, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, earlier, these believers were described as being shaken. They're now told to stand fast. We would use the expression, hold your ground. Rather than being shaken, hold your ground and you will remain stable through your sufferings and struggles. You stand fast when you hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, we usually think of this word traditions as a bad thing, and there are traditions of men that are bad. They are unscriptural and they are burdensome, but that's not, as, uh, not what is meant here. This word refers to the handing down of God's truth to mankind, done in two ways, Paul says, by word and by epistle. Word refers to the authoritative words coming out of your phone right now uh, of the first century apostles of Jesus Christ, and epistle refers to the written word of God. For us, it means that we would stand fast upon the solid foundation of the Bible. That sounds so basic, does it not? Don't you... I know you never do because you love the Bible, but I was going to say, don't you get tired of people saying, just stand on the Bible, do what the Bible says, you know, we're... And, and yet so many people today who consider themselves Christians and profess biblical Christianity are living lives that have nothing to do with, with how God says to live a life pleasing to Him. They're in all kinds of sin, openly, happily, it would seem, And when you challenge them on it, they're not even ashamed of it. They say, well, this is God's will for us. Well, what about here when it says this? Oh, well, yeah, it says that, but who knows what that really means? When God says to avoid, you know, sexual temptation and all, what does that really mean? You know, I mean, as long as I love God, 
And so, well, you know, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, yeah, but, you know, Jesus, he was always saying things like that. I'm making light of it, but there's a whole generation of Christians that don't understand the authority of the Word of God. They don't hold it as authoritative when it comes to the life and godliness that they should live. They live their own way, and they think that they're secure, and we talked about it two weeks ago on Sunday. Jesus is going to say, guys, I never knew you. You are practicing lawlessness. It's not just that this is the big thing they say, well, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, we're all going to heaven, or we're all going to hell. Wow. Anybody who takes hell lightly, by the way, that's a problem, I think. But anyway, uh, yeah, we're all sinners, but we're not all practicing lawlessness, and that's the big difference. Uh, Verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Everlasting consolation is your present experience of comfort, regardless circumstances, because you are loved by God. No matter what you're going through, you can have God's everlasting consolation. Good hope is your looking forward to the return of Jesus and your final glorification, Both of them come to you by grace. They are God's gifts because he loves you. Like any gifts, you must take them and open them. The more you do, the more you will find comfort for your hearts and be established in every good word and work. Word and work is a summation of your entire walk with God. Established brings us back full circle to standing fast. Stand fast upon God's word and he will continue to establish you. Uh, to go, you know, in the end, it's obviously you know this. It's not a legal relationship; it's a love relationship. Seeing His love for you, you are directed onward in your walk by your love for Him. Let's pray.